The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, committed to creating opportunity through knowledge. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And by Blue Apron, the new service that delivers all the farm-fresh ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 12, 2015, the I'm Defaulting on My Student Loans edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura here in Washington, D.C. with uh, now-blooded Face the Nation host John Dickerson. John, hello. Blood. Oh, oh. Blooded. Oh. You've, you've yeah, yeah, no. you, you had first blood. I, you've been I, blooded. That's the, you're the first person who's used that expression in connection with the uh, debut. Hi. How was how was week one? Uh, it, was, it was great. It was exciting. It was challenging. It was, uh, I learned a lot. People seem to have liked it. Some people didn't like it. Uh, Did you read your reviews? Were there reviews? I don't know if there are reviews. Yeah, there was one review, and then there was lots of email, lots of wonderful, positive, uh, helpful email, and then some of the other kind. <laughs> who who do you have on week two? Uh, week two. Well, we have Bernie Sanders, uh, candidate for Ooh. the Democratic nomination, um, and uh, Lindsey Graham, another candidate for a nomination, but of the other party. Bernie and, Sanders is. And then good. you think, and then like this is a huge. The show is the is the meat between the fake announcement sandwich, which is the you've got Hillary Clinton's launch on Saturday. Even though another one did yeah, that already exactly. happen? She already made a video and everything. There you go. Yes, and then Jeb Bush is having uh, his day on Monday. Um, and you may also think that he's already been running for president for a long time. Indeed um, you might. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to talk about on our on our roundtable, which is going to uh, we're talking about one of the topics today, the idea of momentum. I mean, of, of uh, motivation versus persuasion and whether, you know. Uh, what, what do you stop? Okay. We haven't gotten there yet. All right. But I'm just okay. saying. It's, David, it's, we haven't even introduced Emily Bazelon. I know. You asked magazine. me. You asked me what we were doing. I couldn't stop talking. My only, my only other question is, why can't we get Bernie Sanders? Why can't it be a twofer deal? It's like Bernie Sanders, if you're coming on Face the Nation, just give just us. Come on over to the podcast. Come on over to the yeah. podcast, you know, four days earlier. and uh, I'll have to talk to the. <laughs> that's uh, your big ask, David. No, that's your wish list. <laughs> I don't think that's good. All right. Hello, Emily. How are you? I'm good. On this week's show, the Supreme Court gives another giant kick in the face to Congress. Sort of. We'll talk about Pow. that. Pow. Pow. Then is it smart or is it cynical for Hillary Clinton to run like Obama did in 2008 and 2012. And then we'll talk about the student loan crisis. What is the best way to relieve students of their mountains of debt? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, what we've learned from our children. That is a good one. I, I have to think of something I've learned from my children. Before I forget, we have a live show July 29th at 6th and I here in Washington, D.C. You can get uh, tickets at slate.com slash gabfestdc. They are going fast, so get your tickets soon. Uh, July 29th, it's a Wednesday night. Show's at 7. There will be a cocktail hour before that will sell tickets to separately. We haven't arranged that yet. We're, we're really looking forward to it. So get your tickets, slate.com slash gabfestdc. 
It's uh, still June, which means we're, we're heavily into Bazelon season. The Supreme Court is issuing big rulings week after week. And this week, they issued a ruling in a case pitting the Zivotofsky family against John Kerry's State Department, a sort of six-ish judge majority. Not Some, to be confused with a shiksa. A shiksa. There was a shiksa. It was, <laughs> a there was a shiksa majority, I think, actually. There was a shiksa plurality in any case. Yes. Morality. Uh, oh no! Wait, actually, no, 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 no! Not true because we have Jews among those women. Yeah, it's, right. in fact, forget it was, that joke. Sh- no, leave <laughs> it in. Shiksa minority, a shiksa minority. <laughs> um, it included, the, but this uh, majority kind of included both Clarence Thomas and Elena Kagan, which is a weird pairing to have on one on the same side. Ruled that a law passed by Congress in 2002 that required the State Department to allow people born in Jerusalem to put on their passport that they were born in Israel, that that law was no good. The Bush and Obama administrations had said, uh, we're, not, we're just not going to enforce this law because we, as a as president, as an executive, don't have a position about whether Jerusalem is part of Israel and saying it is a part of Israel on a passport, declaring it is, the, it is part of Israel on a passport will cause some sort of foreign policy crisis. And it will also will have a divided U.S. foreign policy on the matter of a recognition of a foreign government with Congress saying one thing and the president saying another. And that that's no good. It's solely an executive responsibility. So, Emily, start us off. What are the legal issues and, and why did the majority get to where it is? Well, let's see. So I think the first question to answer is whether this law, which works exactly as you said, is about the recognition powers of the federal government to recognize another country and its territorial boundaries. So that's one division between the majority and the dissent. Justice Kennedy's opinion for the majority says, yes, this does implicate the United States um, recognition powers. And so we have to decide, are those powers exclusively for the president to exercise or can Congress get involved here? And Kennedy then does some historical analysis, looks at the text of the Constitution. There's nothing about record. The word recognition doesn't appear in the Constitution, so that's problematic. But he finds that the Constitution does give the president the power to receive foreign ministries and ambassadors. And he decides, well, that's pretty much akin to recognition, especially as those words would have been interpreted and read in the 1787, the 1789, whenever it is that that constitution of ours was written. So that's sort of good enough. And then he talks about the functional history in which the president usually was exclusively um, exercising this recognition power. There's a problem there, which is that that's not always been the case. There have been episodes in which Congress has ordered the president to recognize another country, like the Philippines at one point. And Kennedy has to acknowledge that there is this back and forth. But essentially what he is saying in the end is that on foreign policy, when it comes to recognition, the country has to speak with one voice, and that is the president. And so that wins the argument, even though we have this pretty longstanding, um, at least 20th century tradition in Supreme Court law that if Congress passes a law, the president's power to exercise it without Congress, it is at its lowest ebb. So the dissents take this on. And Chief Justice John Roberts in dissent says never before has the court said that the president can ignore Congress when Congress passes a law about foreign policy. This is a big deal. It's a really bad idea. Way too much executive authority. And then Justice Scalia, who wrote another dissent, says this isn't even about recognition. Who cares, essentially, 
from the point of view of the executive's foreign policy, whether these passports say Jerusalem or Jerusalem, Israel on it. And so he just sort of disagrees with the entire premise here, which I think is actually like an interesting question to ask. I don't I don't have a big. What do you think? Well, wait. So I'm uh, I need. You're to lost. Get, well, I'm slow to learn. <laughs> Sorry. I'm slow to learn. So let two, two, two things. One, I couldn't quite uh, in reading about this stay with those who tried to make the turn that the determination about the recognition power suddenly blew a huge gaping hole in Congress's power to check the president. So in other words... You just didn't buy that. Well, I mean, I can see how that might be the case. But what I guess I'm asking for you to help clear up for me is the extent to which Kennedy was circumscribing this, saying, like, the president has this power on the recognition front because of, as you argued, the ability to receive ambassadors, but it stops there. Or do you think there really is this new road that he opened up? I went with you. I thought Kennedy tried to be really clear. Okay, when we're talking about recognition, the country speaks with one voice. That is the president's voice. And then there's a whole lot of recognition I shouldn't have used that word again, acknowledgement. The Congress also has a major play role to play in foreign policy in declaring wars and authorizing spending for military and other adventures abroad. And I thought Kennedy was trying to be balanced and to limit it. But, you know, we'll see. It all depends how this language gets I picked just up so in worry cases. about executive creep. I mean, this is another example of where you here we have a law duly passed by Congress, signed by the president, by signed by President George W. Bush. He With a signed, signing statement, yeah, right? Okay, a signing statement is a like that's a that questionable is a mechanism. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. So right. the president says, I've signed this law. So this law is the law of the land. But you know what? I refuse to enforce this law. We and, should explain. He signed it within the context of a huge military yeah, spending but he's, bill. Did, he, right? sign, yeah, did okay. he or did he not sign the law? He signed, he signed it, it I'm into just, law. And I now he said, I'm not going to enforce this law. So and, and now so Kennedy attempts to narrow it and say this is justice has to do with recognition. But what if uh, Congress decides, you know what, we are we're not going to fund can Congress write a law that says we're not going to fund the issuing of any passport that says Jerusalem on it? Like that's we just you can't you can't spend any U.S. government funds on that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. The president would ignore that and he would issue he would issue the passport each time the the Supreme Court gives the president a little gift, a little gift. It enhances executive power in this in this way. And we've we've accreted executive power in an extraordinary way over the past 20 years. And it scares the hell out of me. Isn't this why people were uh, and have been and still are up in arms both about the Obama administration's decision not to enforce DOMA and the modifications the president has made unilaterally on enforcing the rules of the Affordable Care Act and then also immigration? Yeah. So yeah, so David you know, each of these Plotts contexts are John somewhat Boehner different. Are, are peas in a pod? <laughs> yeah, we are. Well, they are probably to some degree on these fronts. I mean, I think. Well, I, so one. I, although, although, sorry, Emily, to interrupt. No, is no, it, is it the, the reason we've gotten to this point? We've had this conversation five times, probably on the show, is that we have a Congress that refuses to be a, a willing partner or, or an actually active partner in legislation and in, in carrying out meaningful laws and dealing dealing with crises and is a nihilistic Congress. And that's why you, you end up with this accretion of powers to the president. And then you have these sort of extraordinary war situations after 9-11 where the president accretes powers in those cases. But I just think as a, as a citizen, I am so, so alarmed at the way that every time there's a cusp moment that the Supreme Court comes in in the aid of the executive. And this this one seems to me like a really weird one to come in the aid of the executive when you have a law that is passed by Congress where they've expressly presented their will. And it is not at all clear to me. Sorry to keep going. It keep is not going. at all clear to me 
that that the claim that the U.S. is making that this will cause a foreign policy crisis of some sort is has any merit at all. It seems to be completely fabricated. I bet I don't know, have the research on this, but I bet if you look at U.K. passports or French passports or passports from lots of other places, they say people who are born in Jerusalem were born in Israel. I bet there is not any. I bet this is not an issue of crisis in other in other places. And when uh, Israelis go to Israelis who are born in Jerusalem get their passport in, in France because they've you know emigrated to France or whatever and it says they were born in Israel nobody is up in arms it's not causing any crisis this is just like this is a confected ridiculous controversy and Congress passed a law I think it's a pretty lame stupid law it doesn't seem that important but they passed a law and the president should enforce that law yeah I mean I was pretty sympathetic to Scalia's argument that this isn't actually about recognition and like essentially what you're saying is this really such a big deal and in since it seems like arguably this could go into effect without having major implications, is it really worth giving the president this bone or the presidency, I suppose we should say, since there are two presidents? On the other hand, I think if you're the court, do you second guess the executive when the executive comes to you and says, we don't want to do this for, you know, we've been trying so hard not to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel low all these years. Please don't mess this up for us. Yeah. Isn't that isn't Scalia then in that case playing the role of foreign policy analyst as to whether it's a big deal or not? Yeah, and in I which think case, is. yeah. So in that case, that seems to be a little out of his lane. Well, the, well then the since, other, especially then since the, he's such a narrow the, lane, keep right. it in the lane. Kind the, of well, he's the other, claiming the other, that he's doing the that. Other in the other conclusion you reach then is if you if you believe that, John, isn't it where you go with Breyer, which is to say this is not a matter for the Supreme Court to consider at all. That this is basically right. a political right. fight between the branches. Don't, so if Congress doesn't want this, they should impeach the president, and that's that. Not our job. Although, and that goes back to your other point, which is that. Roberts refers to, I don't think he does this publicly, I can't remember, but um, refers to the Supreme Court as the only functioning branch of government left. And therefore, is this another instance in which they're having to adjudicate an issue because the other two aren't That's really working? The executive branch is functioning. But this time, the Congress doesn't function. The executive well, branch is you functioning. can see why Roberts would think the executive branch doesn't function. I mean, the other thing is this time, actually, Congress did function perfectly right, well. Right, We're right, talking right, about a right, bill right. they passed, right? right. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I, it's a really odd case. I mean, the other thing is just thinking about this whole notion of how we – what to do about territorial disputes and – what policy should you have? I mean, this has come up with Taiwan and China and obviously other parts of the world, too. Should the United States government be figuring out some way to just deflect this rather than try to be some kind of arbiter? But I guess every government has to decide how to handle these disputes because there, it's not like there's some objective right answer out there that, you know, you can choose about what Jerusalem is. It just depends who you are and what your perspective is on it. Can I ask one question of Israeli history, Emily, which you probably know the answer to is, <laughs> which is that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel starting in 1947. I mean, it was Jerusalem, sorry, it was part divided. of Israel. Divided Jerusalem. So you're born, you could perfectly well be born in Jerusalem and be in Israel, an unquestioned part of Israel. I don't see why that's an issue. Well, I mean, I suppose you could um, make maybe from 1948 until 1967 when the Israelis captured East Jerusalem and um, taking over the West Bank when they won the Six-Day War. Maybe before that, you know, there was this easier diplomatic distinction between West Jerusalem being Israeli and East Jerusalem being Palestinian or Jordanian. And that has collapsed in the face of the Israeli claim of um, sovereignty over all of Jerusalem. But I 
I, I feel like if, you know, if, if the government started issuing Jerusalem, comma, Israel passports in West Jerusalem, that would still be seen as problematic because Palestinians, you know, and much of the Arab world doesn't recognize Israel's claim over Jerusalem, period, end of story. What's your passport say if you're born in a settlement, like clearly West Bank part of a settlement? I mean, do we have any? Do we issue passports from the West Bank? I bet we don't. Well, no. I, you're an Israeli you citizen. You're an somewhere. Israeli citizen. Right. An Israeli citizen. You were born in wherever. In, in What does your Israeli passport no, say? You're, I'm and sh- then, but oh, you're, you're an American, American citizen, passport. too. Do, does it say? <laughs> I have no idea. It probably. I wonder what it says. Anyway. It doesn't say Israel. I'm sure it doesn't say so, Israel. So, Emily, close us on. Is there? Does this decision have any grander implications than the the interesting um, sort of academic uh, dispute discussion we just had. I, mean, is there I would say right now it feels like it's relatively narrow and confined to this question about the recognition power. And the big debate among the law professors who are writing about it this week is essentially what happens next. And does Kennedy's line about the country speaking with one voice get quoted in future Supreme Court decisions where it's being used in a different context and kind of take the place of this early, rather discredited case called Curtis Wright, where I think it's Justice Sutherland said um, that the that the president was the sole organ of American foreign policy and in a very broad way. And Kennedy made a point of rejecting that statement today. But then he supplied this like one voice alternative. And I think the proper reading of it is what John was saying earlier, that it's circumscribed. But there's going to be an attempt by in other cases for other reasons. People are going to try to make that statement into a broader one. And it'll be up to whoever's on the court to decide what to do with it. No, we're wrong. We're on a long, slow march to executive dictatorship. And this was another step, powerful step towards it. Hmm. Oh, well. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Some small businesses still think an expensive postage meter is the only way to get postage without having to go to the post office. But they're wrong. There is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can easily print postage for any letter or package using just your computer and printer. Unlike a postage meter, Stamps.com has no hidden fees like meter ink charges or reset fees. No extra hardware to buy, no long-term contracts. Stamps.com can save you at least 50% compared to a meter. Plus, you can do more with Stamps.com than you can do with a meter, like sending package tracking information to recipients with one click. So the choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. If you use our promo code GABFEST, you get the special offer, no risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in GabFest. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. The Hillary Clinton campaign, if recent reports are to be believed, plans to reprise the Obama campaigns of 2008 and 2012 rather than running a 50-state centrist campaign, which really like was a ludicrous – that's a, just a <laughs> ludicrous notion uh, – and attempting to win back sort of southern border red states. She seems to be going to focus on eight to 10 states. John Dickerson will tell us if this is true in a second. And, and which to, ones they and are, try to, And she'll try to mobilize her base, in particular to win them, a coalition of women, minorities, young voters. And she's going to abjure the centrist, triangulating style of her husband and of, even of her own 2008 campaign for a more data-driven, base-centric approach. She has been attacked by people like David Brooks and Ron Fournier, 
Ron Fournier. Do you say Fournier? 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 Fournier. Ron Fournier. Fournier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was on your panel this week, John. And we talked uh, about his work like last week yeah. or the week mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Uh, who say this strategy writes off too much of the country. So, John, is the reporting right? Are they really – is it an 8 to 10 state strategy uh, and is this, is this a rejection of the, the middle? You know, it's uh, hard to pull apart what is both the reporting of the underlying New York Times piece and pieces that have been written jumping off of that. I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is that 1992 is a lot different than 2016 in terms of the country. In terms of non-white voters, the difference is, I think it was like closer to 10% in 92. It's now 30. Now it's 30. Yeah. So it's right. So it's 13. Now it's 30. So it would be crazy for a campaign not to change given that changing environment. Then, of course, we have another problem or another issue, which is, and I was, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to people in the in the Clinton campaign and other Democrats about this. When you think about Tennessee is an interesting state. That was Al Gore's state. And Al Gore spent a lot of time trying to fight to win Tennessee. Tennessee is no longer even in the mix. West Virginia is no longer in the mix. But there are new states that are, Virginia and North Carolina. And you might have even for uh, half an hour been able to argue Indiana. I mean, you certainly could argue it in 2008 with Obama. You can't really argue it now for Democrats. But certainly Virginia and North Carolina are now in the mix for Democrats in a way they were not before as much. And then then going outside of that group, you have a, the potential that in a few cycles, Georgia and Arizona might be uh, in the mix for Democrats. So the map is changing. The map is always changing. So that's the difficulty of comparing the two. Now, is Hillary Clinton running a campaign that's focused only on liberal issues to the ex- at the expense of the general election? If you look at what she's talked about so far, let's take them issue by issue. Immigration, she's for a path for citizenship. That's like a nearly 80% public opinion view. She's for same-sex marriage. That is now a majority position in the country. She is for pushing back against Citizens United and getting the money out of politics. We can leave aside the fact that she benefits enormously from the role the money plays in politics, but nevertheless, that is a nearly 80% opinion in the country. She talks about rebalancing the economic scales so that basically wages start to track up like productivity versus CEOs who get paid 300 times what their workers get paid. That's also something, you know, Rick Perry's talking about and Mike Huckabee's talking about and Rick Santorum is talking about. So criminal justice reform, that's also something that Perry's talking about and that Paul is talking about. So none of those issues are things that are so esoteric and liberal that they don't have that larger constituency. On the Republican side, you can see somebody like Scott Walker talking about a constitutional amendment to allow states to oppose same-sex marriage. That's a view that is appealing to a portion of the Republican base, but does not have a huge national constituency for it. So that, I guess, is my attempt to try and explain why what she's doing is not super focused on kind of liberal. So she's uh, running a less liberal campaign than conservatives are running conservative campaigns? At the moment, yes. Now, it's different. Different conservatives are running different kinds of campaigns. But yeah, I think that's right. Now, she's also been more specific than a lot of uh, Republican candidates, although somebody like Chris Christie has been more specific than other. I mean, not, not, not every candidate has been gauzy, but she's also been kind of specific about some of these things where, where you can make the argument about her liberal intentions, it's her focus. So she talks about voter suppression. That's an issue that people care a lot about in the in liberal circles. If you talk to the nation more broadly, people will say, yeah, it's not good to like deny the vote. Although there is uh, the myth of voter fraud 
Um, not myth, the, not good the myth. word. Well, no it's myth. complicated. No, it's look. There is voter fraud. It's just not, not anywhere in near. Person. It's nowhere near the magnitude of the people who claim voter fraud say it is. Yeah, That's, there are like so it's five not, cases it's of it. It's right. total myth. John. No, it's, don't even. John. No, it's not a. It's not a myth. It happens. If but something the point has is, happened look, the three times in American history. No, no, no it's know, happened right seriously. thirty-one times in like the last fourteen years. My point is, when you call something a myth, mm-hmm. you allow other people to say, "Oh, here's a case of voter fraud." It's not a myth. Right. So you you if you are it a person, is a myth that it is a problem, that is, which is what to. I started by saying. Okay, right. OK, so it's a myth that it is a problem of the magnitude that people claim it is of so, any magnitude. All right. Other all right than okay, let's, wait, no, no. OK, we no, don't I need think to you under, litigate so, But I think you undermine litigate. your case when you say that, that it's all a myth because right, people fine. think you mean it never happens at all. And that's just silly. The, so uh, inform people so that they can say, oh, right now I get it. It only happens a limited number of times so forth. Anyway, the point is that that's an issue that liberal voters care about a lot and that allowed her to make mischief in the Republican um, side. And that's something where tactically she's focusing on something liberals care about. But that doesn't suggest that her entire campaign is going to be, you know, focused on like single payer or some other kind of hobby horse of the liberals. So what are the eight to 10 states. Are they the same eight to 10 states for both sides? Yeah. They're, they well, they're be. the same eight to 10 states that we all know, you know, Ohio, Florida, New Hampshire, uh, Colorado. Virginia, Colorado, North Pennsylvania? Carolina, Pennsylvania. No, not Pennsylvania. Not, Iowa. not Pennsylvania, New Jersey. We talked about Ohio uh, already. Iowa, um, Iowa. Iowa. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Iowa. Definitely Iowa. Um, Nevada. 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 Yeah. Um, or Nevada. Is Nevada <laughs> one too? Nevada, Nevada. Those states are all the same. What is on the bubble are is, is Wisconsin's in that mix for sure. Um, what's on the bubble is N- North Carolina and then maybe Georgia and maybe Arizona. Does that but, mean there will almost be no campaigns in the other? Yeah, as always. Four, four now, states. here's why really it matters, though. Here's why a 50 state campaign is not silly and why they're not abandoning a 50 state campaign. Hillary Clinton is really focused on uh, and we know this because of people I've talked to who she's talked to about this really focused on what the Congress is going to look like that she's going to have to deal with. If she really thinks she's going to be president, she has to think about 2018 and 2020. And while the House is is pretty far out of reach, you know, there is a plan. And by the way, also, if you believe in the things she says she believes in, then you want to do everything you can to fill the House up with Democrats, to have Democrats at the local level and have the Senate up with Democrats. But in 18, the Senate map for Democrats is worse than it was in 14. So there are a lot of red state Democrats up in 2018, which would be her first midterm election after becoming president. So that composes two problems. One, if when she becomes president, she regains control of the Senate, as she might, because there are a lot of blue state Republicans up, then she's going to have control of the Senate for like 15 minutes. And then it's not really, but, you know, for a very short period of time before it flips again. So how the hell could, how do you govern? Secondly, as we know, it's it's usual for a president to lose seats in that first midterm, but it's often nevertheless regarded as a huge blow to the presidency. And so she doesn't want, the, even though the map will be bad for her, she doesn't want to lose the actual seats and she doesn't want it to look like it's a referendum on her presidency already after it's been you know in office for such a short time. She's been thinking about all those things. And that's why the states outside of the traditional battleground states are still important for her and are really important for Democrats. And the only way Democrats can build their farm teams in some of these states is through the lift of a presidential campaign when everybody's focused, everybody's interested. And so that's why it, it, she's not going to be blowing or she'd be dumb to and she's not going to blow off the non-swing states. So are we left with no real, is this like a nothing burger? 
longer of an argument. In fact, her stances are have broad appeal, the one she's been emphasizing. In fact, she's maybe not even being as geographically targeted as I thought, having read the Times article. What what have we got here? Well, we just got her campaign is not her husband's campaign. I think another important thing to remember in that regard is just for Democrats, and this is a this has less to do with Hillary Clinton. But remember, Bill Clinton, one of the thing challenges for him was he had to show moderates and, well, moderate, let's call them just moderates, maybe liberal-leaning Republicans, that he was not a kind of old-style Carter McGovern liberal. So he had to show that he was tough on crime. He supported the death penalty. He had to have the so-called sister-soldier moment where he appeared to, in a public way, speak out against his base. Those were seen as smart political moves to build his acceptance among a larger part of the electorate. Hillary Clinton doesn't really have to do that right. um, because the argument is the electorate, the larger part of the electorate is the one that's okay with her. Now, that's different than saying she's going to run like some super narrow hug the base strategy and just try and keep mobilization up at the expense of a larger part of the country. I don't think that's what they're doing. After the primaries, John, is there some way in which she will are there issues where you can say, oh, here's where she's going to go more centrist? It's obvious she'll move this way after the primaries, or she's not going to do that. I think it's a question of emphasis. So, and also the primaries are not, I mean, this is where it's interesting and worth really watching because some of it has been described as, well, she's running to the left because she's trying to steal oxygen from her primary opponents. The reason she's quote unquote, running left or talking about things like voter suppression now are both a to to offer no room to for somebody to get to her left or to talk about something more passionately than she does. But also because it ain't bad. It's not a bad thing to whip up your base and get them excited about you because you're going to need them in the general. It's not like she won't need her base. Can I also add that voter suppression is a huge problem right. as a, states try to take away early voting? I mean, yeah, it's not right, like right, she's right, pointing right, to right. Some, Yeah, right, and okay. that's right. And it's a Just huge problem in, in North Carolina. I mean, it's a problem in states that she North Carolina, needs. I mean, North Wisconsin, Carolina, Wisconsin. I mean, right. right. So in well, she Texas, she's not going to need. Still. But what she was doing with Texas, what she was doing with this whole thing was trying to create mischief in the Republican Party to get the reactions that she basically ultimately got from Republicans, which was for them to get riled up. And therefore, then she gets to be able to present herself to liberals as a champion of an issue that they care about. But your point is right about the state she's going to need. Um, like North Carolina and Wisconsin are states in which this has – she would like this problem to get fixed because it makes it easier for the people who are more likely to vote for her to get out and vote, which is separate and apart from whether – you know from the, the moral case you could make for it. Florida also. Yeah. You know, the other thing I love about calling attention to voter suppression is that it can solve the problem because if people who – would be less likely to vote, get angry that they are being disenfranchised, they can jump through the hoops to get to the polls, unless, of course, they're right. disenfranchised felons who really, really can't vote. But a lot of these people could vote if they were really galvanized to right. do it. Emily, what did you make of the David Brooks column, which was much brooded about, which condemned the perceived Hillary strategy of, of being narrow and base, more base-focused and on a few... States and, I mean, and, and, I saying, and saying that it, it had no and essentially making the case that, well, if she wins, she's going to have no moral mandate to govern, no collective mandate to govern, and therefore she won't be able to get anything done. It seemed to me just like so wildly off base, but go, you go. Well, I mean, I thought it was a great 
piece of performance in the sense that this is the, exactly the kind of argument Brooks likes to make about uniting the country. I mean, he ignored the fact that uh, the, the efforts of Obama in particular, but Bush and Clinton too, to actually do so um, failed once they got into office. But this is his vision. He wants this sort of broad coalition, the sense that we're all going to come together around something. The most curious part of the column was where he had this very specific number, 23%, as the percentage of voters who are persuadable, who might actually vault over to the other party. That just seemed crazy to me. Um, and then I was reading some debunkings of it in which people were trying to figure out where this number was actually coming from and what he meant. Um, it just seemed like that is so at odds with what we have come to understand through all this data about how unusual it is for people to actually be truly up for grabs and who they're going to vote for, for president especially. Right. Right. That number, no one no one has the provenance. I don't know if anyone has asked. No Brooks. one can figure out where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, I just it's so it's obviously you read it. If you read that piece in a vacuum, knowing nothing about the last 30 years of American you'd politics, be like, right you'd, on. of course, of course, we want that. It's just it is that the fact of this nihilistic Congress and the, the total partisan opposition that you that you have in Congress that mean makes it seem so unrealistic and so out of touch. But John, you're you're like a you're a you're a believer in concurrence and people coming together. I mean, is it well, is there anything that, that, that Brooks reality. rings with you? Well, there's not. It's not just. I don't have to be the believer of it. Hillary Clinton gave a great and long explanation, not explanation, um, argument for relationships between the president and Congress, and to- told a story about her relationship with George W. Bush and after 9/11, how they worked together, and used that as a model to explain how things could get done if she were president. And I think that's why what it feels like what Brooks did was he took the Times story and then kind of extrapolated from it to a strategy where, and I'm trying to think of what the liberal version of this would be, was something where where Hillary Clinton would really be moving faster than the country and would kind of cause a a kind of a shock that would set Republicans so against her and set Republicans, the constituents of Republicans so against her that she could get nothing done. That's what he's describing. That's not what she's doing yet in the way she's running. Because of the way politics is so messed up right now, it doesn't matter whether a lawmaker can read through what she's saying and say, well, she's really not that extreme. You know, I can work with her. It matters whether their constituents think she's totally extreme and beyond the pale. And because what happens then is those lawmakers get in a position where because they're future success is determined by by the voters in their state. If they go, go make a deal with this president that their voters all hate for some reason, then they then have to explain themselves I, I, to their voters. I, I don't think I don't, John. I don't think that's an accurate portrayal of what happened with Obama at all. I don't think that well, who Obama said it was what I was. Saying I know, but it, or, or 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 portrayal of what's happening in American politics. It's but not, who said that's what I was saying? I'm saying this is the, how you would extrapolate from something Hillary Clinton would do that would cause that would box her in but, once she became but president. The, the boxing in that implies that her that there's causality between what she does and the boxing in. Well, there was that's no, her with theory. Obama, with Obama, the Republicans well, decided to true. box him. The Republicans decided to box him before he had done anything. Well, two things. And, you, and can argue, a, the, you can the argue with Hillary politics has become so poisonously partisan and that the, the parties have become so ideologically rigid and so physically rigid that when you have a divided government, it is simply the fact that the opposing party, in this case for the past you know eight years, the Republicans, are acting in concert in a unified way to oppose whatever it is the president is pushing, regardless of its virtue, with very tiny, tiny, tiny 
tiny exception. So you can argue the, you can argue it out with Hillary Clinton. This is her theory about how it's going to work. And that's the way in answer to the actual underlying question, which is how does Brooks get to that place? You have to find the thing that because, again, his argument is based on the argument that was in The New York Times. There's no evidence of a thing that sets Republicans so against Clinton as of yet that she's really running hard on that fills in the details of the of the case he lays forward, which is that this becomes that this strategy becomes a new and special constraint on her ability to govern as president. All right. We are sponsored this week by the University of California, committed to creating opportunity through knowledge. 42% of UC undergraduates and more than 78,000 students will be among the first in their families to earn a college degree. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And now for today's featured research. As California enters its fourth year of severe drought, the question on everyone's mind is, where do we get more water? Turns out the answer lies in our... You guessed it, our toilets. Southern California could reduce its reliance on imported water by 30 to 50 percent if cities implement wastewater reclamation and reuse, according to Brent Haddad, a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. An existing technology is in place to filter once-used water until it's as clean, if not cleaner, than water directly from nature. The problem is that people are having a hard time swallowing the idea of drinking water that was once polluted with human waste. Get over it. Get over it. Seriously, people. That is the impetus behind a study released in January by Haddad and several psychologists examining the public's revulsion and advising municipalities on how to overcome it. Research like Haddad's can't happen enough. Even if an El Nino winter brings an end to California's historic drought, the changing climate likely will cause continued uncertainty about where rain will fall and how often. To read the story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit Slate.com slash breakthroughs. Student loans are in the news this week. There were two big reasons for this, I think, or maybe three. First, the Obama administration announced it would offer a program to potentially forgive up to billions of dollars of loans made to students at Corinthian College, which is a for-profit, defunct, I guess, for-profit university that appears to have lied about lots of things, including to students and job to the government, but notably about job placement rates. And it appears to have induced students into paying very high tuition for degrees that turned out to be largely worthless and getting those degrees funded by loans that the students took, some of which were government-backed, some of which weren't. Also this week, there was outrage and I guess a few cheers at a New York Times op-ed by Lee Siegel calling on people to renege on their student loans just as he did. All right. So what, John, what is uh, the Obama administration proposing to do about Corinthian? What is what well, is the big move here? Well, the big move is basically to agree with these students who say they were defrauded and then set up a system through which students can make a claim. and Yeah, a complicated system that may not work for everybody, but we'll see. And then presumably through, if they can prove that they were defrauded, then they would have their loans forgiven. One group of people looks at this and says, oh my gosh, that could cost the, you know $3.5 billion. The question of whether the cost in that case is who bears the cost because a lot of the, there is a surplus in this, as I understand it, in the student loan system. So it can absorb and that that surplus is in part built in to absorb forgiveness of certain kinds of loans. But 
uh, as Emily said, there are a lot of people who say that the system for being for claiming that you were defrauded is incredibly cumbersome. You don't you don't learn about it unless you go seeking for it. It just seems like it, there are barriers. And then finally, I should say, there's also a group of people who are basically automatically getting paid, right? Because they're in they attended the universities that have already been sh- um, part of Corinthian that's already been shut down. So there's a basket of people who are getting paid. There's a basket of people who could get paid if they can prove their claim, but proving the claim seems pretty hard to do. Can we back up a step and talk about, I mean, this is such a hard problem to get one's hands around. We have huge inflation in the cost of going to school, yet many people don't actually pay the sticker price. We have these big loans that people get saddled with later in life and these questions about how to measure the value of a college education and in particular what to do when you get essentially fleeced by a school, often a for-profit school, which is selling you something that you're just never really going to benefit from. And often these for-profit colleges, some of them really prey on vulnerable people like veterans. I mean, it's really vile. One of the worst fact about Corinthium was that at one point they were paying companies to employ students for two days so that they could count those students as having received jobs after graduation. So there's just so much wrong here. And while I'm all for this debt relief for the Corinthian students, what bothers me the most is that the government still hasn't figured out a way to penalize for-profit colleges, not for like outright fraud, which is what Corinthian was doing, for just for being really shoddy. And what I mean by penalize is simply say, we are not going to fund students. Essentially, like we will not be your cash cow, you bad for-profit school. Unless we can prove that you, you know, actively lied. And that's been, there's been a regulatory battle over this going on in the Obama administrations for years, which is stuck because the for-profit schools are a really powerful industry with a lot of friends in Washington. And it's just, that part of it makes me so, um, it's, it's one of those moments of just feeling like, God, this is just completely dysfunctional. That our politics just are not working and people are suffering as a result. It's also, it's terribly complicated. I, I, I've done a bunch of reading on this in the past two days, and I just still don't really understand it because you have you have federal loans, they're grants, they're private sector loans, which are somehow federally backed, I guess. Yep. And then presumably there are also some loans which aren't even federally backed that people might be getting. There's ways that interest rates are set, so rates are set above kind of market rates for certain kinds of loans, but maybe not for like the, you could you could refinance them at lower rates if you were better if you were less of a risk. Uh, and then you have for-profit universities, which are charging at one rate. You have public universities. You have private universities, which are not for-profit universities. And these all the, – the, it's kind of super multivariate, and it's very hard to understand. And then graduate school. We also subsidize a lot of loans for graduate school, which turn out to be very profitable for the government. To me, like the reason – it seems to me like we've gotten here for one obvious reason, which is that we have let – university prices go up too much and that we've just well, switched the costs right. well, to the middlemen. That's what what I wondered here so, is yes. uh, is if this is not a kind of uh, another attempt by the Obama administration to say, hey, fix your prices on your own or we're going to keep putting, you know, like when they talked about the the rating standard that they were going to create and which I guess is still in the pipeline. The yeah, idea, they haven't done that either. Right. But the idea not that really, if you were rated, if you were rated, then Perhaps the rating could be a thing against which somebody could make a fault, uh, a defraud claim, or a in other or words, a knowledgeable, informed decision about right, where to go to college. Right, right. So that that some of this action is, I mean, it's about the specific for-profit college in the conversation, but it's also to kind of 
show other institutions, hey, we're going to keep getting more involved if you don't lower your prices? So if we were creating from scratch a university system in a country called the United States, would we have no loans, no government loan program, and just a lot of public funding going straight to schools? And which schools would receive it? What kind of distinction would we want between public and private? And would we have any for-profit universities at all? That is a really good question. Because you look at U.S. higher education, and on the one hand, it is clearly the best in the world. Like in, right. in some ways, it is, it's the best in the world. The university you teach at, Emily, the universities we all went to, amazing universities. We are, we're very expansive in who private, higher education reaches. Wait, wait, wait. We have very few poor students at our um, private our, – our selective private I schools. Think, but I think – no, no, no. It's not, not at selective private schools. I'm saying overall. That overall, edu- yes. The American – America both at the, the elite level, our elite universities educating our best and, and best – most privileged students are the best in the world and also reach a pretty large number of people, although not – but it's still a tiny parts of the population. Not socioeconomically diverse. Yeah. Just... And, but overall, we send a lot more people to higher education than I think most countries do. Though they don't finish, a lot of them. Though they don't finish. But um... – Now that right. we've so interrupted so much, what the hell were you originally I saying? I no, but you were about – those were the, the, the pros of the American higher right, the ed cons system and then the, the cons. cons. That, that, that they're, it's tremendously expensive and people don't finish as much. And – and there's all this weird middleman funding that you were just talking about and waste, right? I think we tend to think of education as being sort of like healthcare, which is that we – it has an element of right to it. It's hard for the customer to actually know what they're getting. It's seen as sort of essential and the financing is, is opaque. Here's a question And we I put up with about. a huge amount of inequity. So you mean inequity across socioeconomic – Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Chris Christie was making this argument last week at his town hall, and I I didn't know whether – so he said, you know, what's so frustrating about college is that you get a bill and you have no idea what the bill is for. And so – That's like hospital, yeah. Yeah, so that it should be more like a restaurant. So you know what everything itemized cost, and then you can argue, like, I didn't get the beef or, you know, I didn't order that Chardonnay. So would that really fix it? Is that no. I mean, it seems like it would make it a more informed consumer choice. But it seems to me they could monkey with the costs and fiddle around. But think, of, yeah, yeah, I do kind of think it does. Me. No, but I think if you look at where the innovation is, if you look at an Arizona state or what's the one New Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire, where they're doing all these things, where they're kind of combining online and real world mm-hmm. courses yeah. and doing sort of super cut rate degrees, where you take a lot of it online. And and where you there's a very heavy practical emphasis and practical degree programs, which is what most people want, and and you know it damages the liberal arts, but but so it, it leads to jobs. But it leads to jobs. I mean, I feel like that time. kind of innovation, which which is very price sensitive, and it's very and a la carte, very and very a la carte, is a better system for most for the vast majority of students. Right. So we should have that. And then the other thing to think about is how to do we care about the arms race that selective schools are going through right now where they're just getting fancier and fancier in the amenities they're providing students. And that is part of what is driving up the loan costs and the tuition prices. And it's not exactly clear, you know, do we do students need to be at universities that feel like country clubs in order to get their education? That's like the opposite trend, Here's what which I is also do. a really strong trend. What I would do, I would if I were designing a, a, a university education system, I would try to have three tracks moving simultaneously, and each of them would be handled differently. There would be a private, elite private education system, which would 
probably would benefit, you know, the rich would probably benefit outstandingly from it. They would benefit like rich foreign students and, and rich Americans, but it would also benefit the very, very, very best students because be, it would be merit, meritocratic. And they would largely be on their own. Those universities would, would get, where they would get money would be from federal research dollars. So that would be fine. Then the public, there'd be a vast public university system, which would still have elements of the liberal arts, but it would be much more heavily state funded. And so that the students going to those would pay much lower tuition, but they would they would bear the cost themselves. It wouldn't be it would not be mediated through loans. It would be they would have to pay that tuition. But because there would be much higher federal and and state funding for those universities, those dollar amounts would be lower. And then finally, I would heavily encourage these a la carte programs, which are super online, and give lots of good loan benefits to those as long as there there's perform as long as you have strong performance evaluations. But so that there's a huge access to people to get into those programs and there would be a lot of government support for those for those programs for people who don't want a full public university degree program but who want sort of a, a la carte service so they can become nurses or can become particular skills and you need a bit of higher education, but you don't need a four-year program. You'd, but you'd have oversight. So the government would only have to fund the ones that are yeah. actually benefiting the students. Yeah. And, it, and you would allow a lot of that creativity in it. But those, so but those you, three tracks, would, it, with those three tracks would be very, yeah, it's, it would be tracking. Yeah. It would be like, yeah. And is this and your then, confection right. or did this come, is this the product of some piece of legislation or something that's out there? Or is this I just the plots? Yeah. This is the plots right. method. Right. I just, I know because people, when they hear that, they might want to know where they could go to read more. They want the white paper, David. At, at David um, Plots, whitepaper.com. I mean, one thing to think about, I like a lot of things about your vision, is whether you are outlining something that would give us in the end something more like the British secondary school system where people get tracked earlier in life. I mean, we we have resisted that in this country. We have wanted this idea that, you know, all the way through high school, everyone could potentially turn into a liberal arts student and genius. And we don't want to. I mean, this is a fiction to some degree, but you are moving away from that. Well, I'm saying that it's I'm moving away from that. But I'm also saying that the vocational if you think of these the third track where you're you're training to become a you're trained to become some sort of technician, and it requires the equivalent of a year of higher education, but you don't really need, like, expository writing to do that. That right. you do end up with a vocational – it's a vocational track, but it's chosen at eight, at 18, not yes, at not eight. 14. Yeah. And why? Why do you want it to be chosen at 18? Because you still want people to have expository writing I don't know. Maybe, no, maybe, it should be, maybe it should be chosen earlier. Maybe well, I, I guess uh, the reason I would want it, want it to be is that tracking – we know, or we think we know, anyway, I think it's true, that tracking has been used in the lower, in public schools at younger ages to basically just cast kids off early and not work right. too well, hard. Right, well, and also it's both race and class right. based, right? Right, yeah. right. So you'd want to force schools to work a little harder and not just track kids into a kind of dummy class and forget about them. All right. Well, we've veered into fantasy land, but I think we solved, we solved the, problem the problem of student loans because there will be no more of Emily, them, do you want to do you want to say anything about Lee Siegel or do you agree with John? It's like he just mooned everybody. You know what struck me about Lee Siegel's piece was that is this a past notion that there's something um, to be proud of in paying off one's student loans, that it's like a mark of you benefited and now your education is paying off and you're giving it back? And I guess what Siegel would say in response is, well, I didn't benefit. I didn't make enough money. But I felt like he was, I mean, he has three degrees from Columbia. Really, he doesn't make enough money to have paid off like even the first one. I, I was a little suspicious of that as a premise. And then I guess uh, you know, on the one hand, I do think that people have to go into way too much debt, and there is something deeply unfair about that because it's all about the privilege you're born into or lack thereof. And I felt like he put his finger on that. Fair enough. On the other hand, 
There's something deeply irresponsible about deciding that you're not going to pay off a debt when it gave you a piece of education, which you presumably um, have benefited from. Yeah. The the thing that I found so objectionable about that was actually the, the terribleness of the advice. Oh, my the God. Idea that, totally. That Go other ruin people your credit rating. You, you do ruin your credit rating, which has huge impact on you if you, for most the vast majority of people, they can garnish your wages. So you're going right, to end up... Right, and you end up paying back you, way more you if they catch back. you. Yeah, and there are now payback programs, and, and Jordan Weissman and Slate had a really good piece about yes. this, where you you can choose a loan option where you're paying back a percentage of income. You're saying, I'm going to pay back 10% of my income. And whereas if you default, you're going to end up garnished at a much higher rate. Right. Uh, I mean, gonna... I felt like Siegel, without saying so, must be in some kind of loophole as a freelance writer where he's hard. He has no wages to garnish. It's hard for them to figure out how to, like, collect all his W-9s and take his money. But he didn't point that out in the piece. So it sounded like a much more broadly available kind of scam than I think is probably the case. Okay. Blue Apron is the new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly proportioned and come in an easy to follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. You can cook meals like Thai chicken meatballs with red coconut curry and bok choy or macadamia crusted cod with black rice and golden beet salad. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Uh, let's go to cocktail chatter. So when you're preparing to speak to Bernie Sanders this week, John, but lubricating in advance. What are you going to be chattering about? I am going to be chattering about uh, a story that um, that I came across in uh, Tim Weiner's new book about Nixon called One Man Against the World. During the bombing of Cambodia, the United States was bombing Cambodia in contravention of congressional legislation to go back to our previous conversation. There was a, a woman who she was a stringer for Newsweek in Cambodia, and her name is Silvana Foa. I think I may be butchering it. She later went on to be a United Nations spokesperson. And um, she printed these stories about how, you know, the United States government was colluding to bomb in Cambodia. And the embassy in Cambodia said, no, we're not doing that. This is a total lie. She should be expelled from Cambodia. It's totally wrong. Well, the Foreign Relations Committee sent two investigators over anyway to check this out. They went to Phnom Penh and talked to her and said, you know, the U.S. government says you're totally making all of this up. And in the interview, she just went and turned on a $15 radio that she had. And the radio could pick up the people in the U.S. embassy giving the bombing instructions <laughs> to the bombers just on a $15 radio. Um, and so, you know, the jig was up for, uh, and she was it, totally vindicated. But, I mean, it's a great story, but also, like, to have the proof, like, I mean, that's such a dramatic moment, you know? Um, anyway, so I love that little story. That's. I always wondered, they always talk about the secret bombing campaign. I didn't realize that's what they meant, the secret bombing of Cambodia. Yeah. They were... That we deny that we were doing it. We deny that we were doing it. We deny yeah, that we were we were colluding in in the process. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter is about a glorious event in the life of my 12-year-old son, Simon, this week, who got to go on Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. 
He had the time of his life. I got to read you guys the title of this um, podcast episode, which Simon is just in love with. Lonely LeBron, Dominant Serena, and Nate Silver versus a 12-year-old. Simon took on Nate over how they do the dynasty rankings at um, for basketball dynasties. This came out of a chatter that I did a couple weeks ago after Simon sent Nate and 538 an email. And it was just the most fun ever. Um, Jody Avergan... Micah Cohen, Nate, these guys were so nice to my kid. And he just like absolutely enjoyed himself beyond belief. And I got to be the very proud mom. It was super, super fun. So we're going to play you a short clip of Simon and Nate going at it over the 1960s Celtics and basketball dynasties. One thing that interested me was I wanted to know in a random situation what are the odds like just by random chance that a single team would win 11 out of 13 championships in a 10 team league and the answer i got was one in 63 billion one in 63 billion if you're just drawing lottery balls it would come up green again Mm -hmm. and again and then i wanted to calculate that for the spurs and what i found that was really interesting to me was that it was only one in a hundred thousand that's still pretty good. True, but it's a little bit less. But so for the Spurs, and you're saying out of 30 teams. Instead, yeah, out of 30 teams. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is some good math, right? I guess our argument that was about how much to weight championships versus versus everything else. I'm a Celtics fan, so I'm probably a bit biased. A biased. But uh, no matter what the numbers say to me, I will always pretty much feel that you can't argue with championships. And they had a lot of them. A lot of rings for Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. More than he could fit in all his hands. <laughs> all right. That is 12-year-old sports nerd heaven. Please, listeners, go out there. Subscribe to Hot Takedown. Um, I am so grateful to you guys for having Simon on. Thank you. That's awesome. That's that was so great. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's uh, do my chatter. David, what's your chatter? My David, t- what's your chatter? <laughs> my chatter um, is about a really deplorable thing that is happening to Reason Magazine. I don't know if you guys saw this. So Yes, uh, crazy. Yeah. So the founder of Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht, wrote a letter to Catherine Forrest, the judge who would, before she sentenced him, the judge who would eventually sentence him to life in prison for his role as the mastermind of Silk Road. And Catherine Forrest, while sentencing him, said very mean things about libertarianism. She condemned his political philosophy. And reasons, Reason, I think, ran his letter. I, I, I Shoot, I may have this slightly wrong, but I think that Reason ran his letter. And then there were a bunch of comments about the letter and about what had happened to him. And then there was a number of anonymous commenters, because Reason has, I guess, anonymous commenting. You can use, a, use whatever your name, who said uh, terrible things about the judge. They said, um, it's judges like these that should be taken out and shot, wrote one. Uh, Why waste ammunition? Wood chippers get the message across clearly, especially if you feed them in feet first. Said another one, I hope there's a special place in hell reserved for that horrible woman. Said another one, I'd prefer a hellish place on earth be reserved for her as well. Said another one. So, you know, these are... these are People got mad people got as mad. they do on they, the internet. And they vented. And this goes back to this Facebook case we talked about last week, the threats. So these are, these were, you know, they were angry. I don't think any person in their right mind could possibly say that judges like these should be taken out and shot represents a legitimate threat that the judge should feel from Agamemnon. There's no there's, there's no one who's looked at the internet once could possibly say, oh, this is genuinely a threat and this person is contemplating action. But 
What did the U.S. attorney in, in Southern District of New York do? Issued a subpoena to reason demanding IP addresses, names of these commenters, and presumably in pursuit of a criminal investigation of these people, which is both a harassment of Reason magazine and its right to publish and its its role as a creator of excellent free speech. It's a, it's a harassment of these commenters who were venting, who clearly were not engaged in any, any form of actual criminal threat against this judge. And it's a tremendous waste of resources for Reason, who will have to fight it, and for the U.S. government to be spending time on nonsense like this. So I hope this, this U.S. attorney withdraws the subpoena. I hope someone smacks them down for having done it. It's, an, it's a really appalling thing to do in an attempt to crush, crush dissenting language, to crush political speech. It's exactly what the, what the First Amendment is there for. It's, it's really disgusting. Yeah, it just does seem like an overreach. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please email us. Great advice, recipes, tips grooming tips please subscribe to the GabFest at itunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz come to our live show july 29th at 6th and i in dc slate.com slash gabfest dc there's still a few tickets left see you there On the latest episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, uh, we have three co-hosts diving into a number of subjects, including myself, Baratunde Thurston. Our normal co-host, Raquel Cepeda, is out, but Anand Girdardas is in, and Tanner Colby is with us. We talked about a bunch of things, like such as... Beautiful hafus. The bamboo ceiling. And Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. So check us out at showaboutrace.com or find us in iTunes.